0: What's up boys we are back with the MMA meeting let's talk with the weasel podcast where we talk all things MMA we got some fights coming up next week we have that UFC 273 card and the main and co-main event are championship fights but it seems like everybody has their eyes on Hamza Shemaev and Gilbert Burns as prestigious as those top two fights are the people's main event seems to be Burns and Hamza mainly because a lot of people believe and are set on how those two championship fights are going to end. People believe that Volkanovski is going to dominate Korean Zombie. And Piotr Yan is going to continue what he did in the first fight with Aljamain Sterling. So the real questions. The mystery. About Burns versus Hamza. Is the thing that's most intriguing. Is Hamza really good enough? Or is that another hype train? on the path of being derailed that question alone is the thing that's getting people so interested in that fight if Hamza goes and beats Gilbert Burns I mean it's a very historic moment for the welterweight division a fighter who has only 3 wins in that weight class to fight Kamaru Usman just merely thinking about that shocks you how do you only get 3 wins and fight someone like Usman the pound for pound number 1 fighter in the world well, seemingly number one pound for pound. I saw some of the questions later for the podcast that that asked the real definition of what pound for pound really is. Is it really kamar Usman or is it who is the most skilled fighter? So we can all agree 100% Hamza versus Burns is an enticing fight. We all want to know what's going to happen there. We all want to know how good Hamza is. But let's not get mistaken here. People believing that Korean Zombie is just going to fold under Volkanovski might be in a bit of a surprise when that fight goes down. There's a huge possibility that Korean Zombie can catch Volkanovski with something because you have to be objective about Korean Zombie's skills. He's a one-punch knockout artist with legit Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and his precision with his hands is unlike many fighters in the featherweight division. Volkanovski got caught on his way in against Max Holloway if Korean Zombie lands those kind of shots I don't know Volkanovski gets back up and to think about the Max Holloway fights where Volkanovski had to take the fight to the ground in order to get ahead against Korean Zombie it's a little bit different given the fact that he's so dangerous on the ground compared to Max Holloway now Korean Zombie can be very hittable doesn't have the greatest head movement and tends to get easier to hit as the fight goes on but the danger factor of Korean Zombie cannot be underestimated I could definitely see the world where Vulkanovsky is winning the fight he's catching zombie with light kicks which is definitely going to be a big weapon some overhands maybe stunning him here and there taking him to the ground here and there ending the round with those takedowns only for him to charge in when he shouldn't get caught by an uppercut dropped and then choked out I could definitely see something like that happening where Korean zombie is losing the majority of the fight but happens to catch the finish later in a five rounder you cannot count Korean zombie out As good as Alexander Volkanovsky is. I believe he's one of the two best fighters in the UFC right now. But styles make fights and there's different dynamics when you fight each fighter. So that one is also going to be pretty interesting. Now, Pietri and Eljamain Sterling. People are really dead set that Pietri is going to run through this guy. But you have to take an honest look at how that first fight was going down. For the first two rounds, it wasn't like Jan had his way with Sterling. Sterling had a lot of good moments. He gassed out, was a little bit too fast, too much on the pedal. And he couldn't keep up with Pietri later. The more volume, the more activity he had for the first two rounds. Given that Pietri is a little bit more of a slow starter. He has to really figure out, analyze you, download the data. And then capitalize and punish you later. Those first two rounds are going to be very crucial for Sterling to make something happen. And it's going to be the same thing for the second fight. Maybe for the fact that this is the first rematch for Piotr Jan. He may not have to analyze as much as he did in the first fight. So I could definitely see where Piotr Jan is gonna be a little bit faster in the beginning of this fight compared to the last one and that can change the way this fight goes we all know that Patreon could go five rounds i mean him and cory Sandhagen went at it for five rounds and didn't gas out he was doing crazy combinations by the end of the fight so we all know that Patreon has beyond five round cardio he could definitely be a bit explosive in those first two rounds and be fine for five but the long punches the creativity unorthodox striking of aljami sterling while constantly trying to look for takedowns and he only needs the Patreon to expose his neck or just break his posture a little a bit to make something happen there is a level of danger that Putreon is gonna have to deal with against alderman sterling especially going into a rematch and sterling has to be that way Pietro might be the best fundamental fighter in the UFC. He does everything perfect by the textbook while adding his own flair to it. You have to be creative and unorthodox in order to beat him. Fighting by the fundamentals with Pietro Yan is almost a sure way to lose. El Sterling has some good coaches behind him. Maybe they could develop a different kind of game plan and Sterling's gonna fight differently. It's not a given fight, although I do agree that Yan should still be a heavy favor because the fact that this is a rematch means that Yan doesn't have to download as much. He kind of already knows how Sterling fights. And this is going to show us If Piotr Jan is much better at rematches Considering the way he fights And speaking of Piotr Jan Lately I've been getting asked a lot As to who is the perfect fighter in the UFC We all know pound for pound Kamaru Usman's number one We all know that Jon Jones and Demetrius Johnson Are regarded as the most skilled fighters But who actually is the most technical Skilled fighter on the roster Right now at the moment It's a tough one between I think three fighters But I would have to go with Piotr Jan Alexander Volkanovsky and Valentin Shevchenko Are definitely right there I would actually argue more that the fundamentally perfect fighter in the UFC is up between Pyotrion and Valentin and Shevchenko. Not so much Volkanovski because he has his own thing. A lot of the stuff that he does is not going to work for a lot of fighters. That's why, you know, people will bring up Jon Jones... I don't regard him as a fundamentally perfect fighter because the things that he does is not going to work for anybody else. And fundamentally, he has a lot of errors and a lot of things he does. He can get by by his reach, his athleticism, his unorthodox defense. Whereas for Piotr Jan and Shevchenko specifically, they do stuff by the book. Textbook fighters, perfect at that. Fundamentally sound in almost everything they do. Of course, some things here and there that can get him exposed to certain threats. Piotrion can sometimes lunge in his punches too much. Valentina Shevchenko is the opposite. She doesn't like to lunge in almost at all. In fact, she doesn't even like the lead fights or... And it causes her to be not as effective at covering distance and fighting someone at long range. She gets content on looking the counter and tapping your lead leg. And you can see where that can cause some issues for her. It's just the level of competition between her and Piotrion is very different. Very, very different. Shevchenko has fought some really good fighters in the past like Nunez and Joanna, But even there... And Shevchenko struggled in some areas, especially with Amanda Nunez. Given that Nunez is amazing at distance management. One of the biggest weaknesses in Shevchenko's offensive game. And we kind of saw how that went down. As for Pietro he could fight someone like Corey Sanhagen, who's much longer, much taller than he is, really good at keeping distance on someone, And he's able to find his way in every single time. Another thing going against Shevchenko and why I favor Piotrion as being the fundamentally most perfect fighter in the UFC is... The feinting game is very different between the two. Shevchenko is very one-dimensional with a lot of things she does, especially with her feints. And it's gonna be difficult for those to work against some of the highest tier fighters. But playing Devil's Advocate against Piotrion, there isn't much of a submission game to his skills. So that whole area can actually push Shevchenko above him. Those are the two fighters I believe might be the most fundamentally perfect fighters in the UFC... I mean the fact that Piotr Yan has an effective high guard game in MMA, that speaks volumes to how technical he is and how aware he is. The high guard in MMA has gotten fighters into trouble so many times in the past, it's almost been abandoned entirely. Piotr Jan sticks to this and makes it work against the best fighters in the world That's a special level of technical awareness His offensive weapons are great He might lunge in a little bit too much with his punches That can get him caught sometimes like it's done in the past I think uh, Jimmy Rivera caught him and John Dodson But he's great on the back foot He's great on the front foot He holds true that original plotting style Doesn't really move around the cage too much But makes it very effective Even against some of the most elusive fighters in the sport like Corey Sandhagen. He brings old school variables to a modern fight It makes them work. With also putting together creative combinations. Technically perfect punching and kicking form. Amazing takedowns. Trips the shots. He's insane in the clinch. One of the best defensive fighters in the UFC. And then we talk about his fight IQ. His ability to download data. And pick you apart later. Mid-fight analyzing from this guy is unlike anybody I've ever seen since Anderson Silva in his prime. By the time the third round comes, you're pretty much done. That was the narrative with Anderson Silva as well. Maybe not third round, but they said if you got into the second round with Anderson Silva, the fight was over, he figured you out, and there's nothing you can do. That's the same sentiment I'm getting from putreon as well. Whenever I watch his fights, it's insane mind-boggling as someone who's trying to analyze it to see how much better he gets in a fight and how many things he has picked out from his opponent and they're never able to really address it back it's genius level of fighting that's why i also believe that pietrion vs cory Sandigan is one of the best fights in the last like 10 years and in my opinion pietrion vs cory Sandigan is the greatest fight of all time that's for me the technicality of that fight is unlike any fight i've ever seen before and that's stuff i really appreciate man and it was also entertaining the creativity of the fight was insane. The heart they displayed was insane as well. Especially for Corey Sandigam. I mean, he got hurt in that fight badly multiple times. And just always able to find his way back into the fight. Land a few shots on Pierciano. And even show his own creativity out there. I love the Justin Gage's and Michael Chandler fights of the world. I love the John Jones and Gustafsson's and Colby and Usman fights. Those are all amazing. And I can definitely see where those kind of fights are on the top of the list for a lot of people. But for me specifically, I love the Jan and San Hagen fight. And I really appreciate Pietri on another level after that one. And this brings up a question. Who can beat Pietri we got to see what Sterling can do but honestly if we're looking at probability like on chances I would have to say if Henry Cejudo can make a comeback because stylistically Henry Cejudo is the kind of guy that can give Pietro a lot of issues and then Jan is gonna have to deal with Henry Cejudo's ability to adapt in the fight. Jan is amazing at picking the opponent apart as the fight goes on but how he's gonna deal with Henry Cejudo who can adjust to that. There's not a lot of guys in the bantamweight division that can beat Pietro in any area of the game. He's the best boxer. He's one of the best wrestlers. He's one of the best kickers. He has the highest fight IQ. He has some of the best counter shots. He's one of the best lead fighters. You have to bring someone who has a major advantage in certain areas. Henry Cejudo is a far better wrestler than Petrion is. He can out-scramble him. He's one of the only guys that could take him to the ground. And that opens up an entire new world that we're not used to seeing Pietri Jan fight against. And as long as Cejudo can keep that threat up against Pietri Jan, He can make a lot of things work on the feet. Where Sudo's effective with what he does. That linear karate style moving back and forth in order to find his right hand. It could be a bit one-dimensional. I don't think that alone is going to beat Yan. But mixing up a threat of a takedown opens that up for Henry Cejudo. I know a lot of people are thinking, what about Marab now? If Suhudo has that kind of wrestling that can threaten Putreon at any given moment, what about Marab? He's like the only other guy. I agree as well. Marab is a guy that can really threaten putreon with that wrestling and that can open some things up. But the thing with Marab is he's not nearly as good, as fast, as sharp, as powerful as Henry Sehudo is on the feet. So I don't think Jan is going to have any trouble with Mirab when it comes to striking at all. Like he's not going to feel threatened at the least bit. And that's where the issues arise there. Henry su I believe is the only guy that has a higher probability... Of beating Patreon, I believe it could be like four out of 10, maybe even five out of 10. Whereas when you look at guys like Jose Aldo, maybe like two or three out of 10, he definitely has a path to victory there. Eljamin Sterling, maybe somewhat similar. Corey Sang, a little bit more like three and a half, four out of 10. That guy's a special fighter, man. He really is. And with that, we're gonna go right to the question. We're gonna start with patrons. But considering the best fighters overall, I believe in any order, Volkanovski, Piotrion, and Valentin Shevchenko are the best fighters in the UFC. No disrespect to anybody else, it's just these three fighters are so highly skilled, it's really tough to catch up to them. And isn't that kind of funny? Remember the days when Volkanovski was heavily underrated? Like to the point where nobody believed that he could be Max Holloway? Even going into the second fight, a lot of people didn't believe he would beat Max Holloway. So people thought that, you know, eventually he's going to lose against the top guys. And even up to the fight with Ortega, a lot of people believed that Ortega was going to beat him. But now it seems after that fight, everybody has come into an agreement that not only is he the best featherweight on the planet, he might just be the best fighter pound for pound in the world. And that's awesome to see, man. I love when fighters like that... Who have been so underestimated in the past exceed those expectations for a lot of people to the point where he's undeniable. It happened with Kamara Usman as well. But the thing with Kamaru Usman was he changed his style and I think that has changed people's perspectives on him. Because they looked at him as a boring wrestler that didn't have any striking. But once he started to put his hands together, got there with Trevor Whitman, the narrative around Kamaru Usman was changing quickly. First question by Soren. Hey Weasel, thanks for the high quality MMA content. After watching the boxing fight between Thor Bjornson and Eddie Hall, what do you think is the limit to skill beats size? Can someone like Figgy or Moreno beat one of them in a fight? How about Amanda Nunes versus Cyborg? And then fantasy matchups. So the skills versus size debate is something that a lot of people don't know where to draw the line on. The question, could Figgy or Moreno beat one of these two in a fight? I don't think does it too much justice because yes, they could they could find a way to win ultimately it will have to come to getting their neck somehow and choking them out but chances are no they're way too small beyond too small i think i entertained a little bit too many of these uh these topics in the past and made it seem like oh i think the smaller guy is gonna beat the bigger guy if i see it happen no figgy and moreno i would not say would beat bjornsson or eddie hall in a fight when you really think about it these two giants are literally i'm not even exaggerating over twice their size what does Moreno weigh like 150 Bjornsen lost weight and he weighed 350 when he fought Eddie Hall he's 6 foot 9 Eddie Hall I think weighed like 315 when it comes to where you're half the size of someone the chances of you beating them are so minuscule at that point your skills aren't really going to matter I'm not going to say they're not going to matter no matter what because let's say a fight happens between the two guys the smaller guy's gonna have to rely on his skill his speed and the cat and mouse game To really get the bigger man tired and try to find a way to choke him out or knock him out. But the chances of that succeeding are very small given the environment of which they're going to fight. The game plan for all these smaller fighters to win are always going to be the same. Run around. Get the bigger guy who can't control himself to miss. Gas himself out. Therefore you can capitalize. But the thing is, you're not going to find normal human beings as big as Bjornsen and Hall. These are extraordinarily big human beings. And they're also not fat. They're athletic. And they have some skill in combat sports. These guys are complete outliers that you're not really going to put into the equation of generally, can a smaller guy beat a bigger guy? So the question is, where is the limit to this? I'm going to be honest, I don't know where the limit is. Because we've all witnessed massive men lose a small man many times. If someone's much bigger than you, but they have no experience in fighting, you can be pretty small and beat them. For an example, I can see someone who's like 160 pounds, maybe even 150, 5'8", 5'9", who has a lot of experience in martial arts, beat someone who's like 200, 220 pounds, that has abysmal level of training or no training at all i could definitely see that happening in fact i've seen it happen but when you get to the level of monsters and giants like thor and eddie hall you have to execute the perfect game plan and avoid getting grabbed by those guys as perfect as possible if you do not get grabbed and you're able to gas them out as quickly as you can I could see a small guy beating them but again you have to be perfect but then again we don't have any science to this we've seen big guys who don't have experience beat small guys who have experience we've seen very small guys who have experience destroy big guys who have no experience it's all by a case-by-case basis. And then you ask, what about a fight with Amanda Nunes and Cyborg? That fight already happened. And then fantasy matchups, Bisbeing versus Till. Oh, Darren Till for sure. Younger generation, I don't think it's a fair fight. Aspinall versus Gon. I'm gonna take Gon on this one. And then Colby versus Leon. Definitely have to go with Colby. Have a great week. Thank you so much, Soren, for the questions and you two men. And then with Jesse Griffin. With Mazadel potentially receiving a felony for his actions, are we watching one of the biggest falls from grace in MMA history? His Askrim KO sent him to the mainstream, and the Diaz win cemented his position. Then he loses three in a row, and who knows what will happen with this whole legal matter. I fear we may be watching the downfall of an MMA superstar live. Besides the losses, can't really control them too much. You could just control what you do in them, but if the other guy's better than you, it is what it is. But what happened to him after the fact is completely his responsibility. He had full control on getting into trouble or not getting into trouble He decided to go the thuggish childish route By allegedly sucker punching a guy he lost to in a fight And I still question to this day Why didn't he do this before? Why did he wait after he lost? Perhaps Hori who is from the streets And also wanted to always be low-key Remember he said he never wanted to be a guy Who put on a character Was in the limelight Any of that stuff He was always used to Ever since he was a kid To be low-key And maybe he didn't know how to handle being high-key in the limelight at all times When you're that level of star, you're never gonna have privacy Everyone's gonna know everything you're doing So he perhaps didn't know how to stay out of trouble Because here's the thing about Jorge, he never changed As a person, he's always been this way He always was thuggish, even when nobody even knew about him I mean, he used to glorify his sucker-punching ability He told stories about stuff happening in bathrooms Alleged altercations he's had in the past So at least the guy's always been authentic so I'm very straightforward. I'm very honest. I'm gonna say what I believe. Number one, Jorge wasn't as good as a lot of people thought he was. He had great knockouts. He had great opponents to go up against in order to dis- in order to deliver that kind of entertainment. We gotta give him the Darren Till win. Now that Darren Till win was really good. That's probably his greatest win in his entire career. But everything that followed afterward went perfect for him. And he never really fought a high level fighter. I mean Ben Askren was not high level. We found that out later. Nate Diaz was never really like a high level fighter. Just a big name that people who are better than him can make a name off of. And that's what Jorge was able to do. But when he fought the highest level fighters like Colby and Usman. Not only was he not able to hang with them he got dominated and destroyed. A lot of times the most popular fighters are also sought to be some of the best fighters in the world. This happened with Conor McGregor and he proved it at the time. When Conor was on top of the world, yes, he made a name for himself by trash talking and being charismatic, but he also backed it up. A lot of people have to admit that. In that featherweight division, he went on a tear. He beat Chad Mendes and he knocked out Jose Aldo, the greatest fighter on the planet, in 13 seconds went up to another weight class and eventually was able to claim that lightweight title. He did things that other stars of the sport were not able to accomplish. And ultimately, the biggest names in the sport came off of him, such as Nate Diaz, for an example. Nate Diaz was always somewhat of a name, but he went into the stratosphere when he fought Conor McGregor and beat him. Then a domino effect happened with Jorge Mazadal, who was able to beat Nate Diaz. He went from a big name off the Askren win, given that Askren, at the time, you all remember was actually getting a lot of publicity, a lot of viewership all over the place. Whenever Askren was brought up, everybody was watching. YouTube videos were like millions of views and stuff on whatever was happening with Ben Askren. So he took out the other guy that had a lot of attention. But you can see in the pay-per-view buys that Jorge's publicity, his notoriety, was declining after that Usman lost. The first one did over a million pay-per-view buys. The second one did 600,000. It got cut in half. People expected Jorge to also be a magnificent fighter. A guy who should become champion and he ultimately did not live up to that. He had a big rivalry fight with Colby who also is a big name in the sport. And now what's happening with him here? When you factor in stardom, this is probably the biggest downfall in MMA history. The real biggest downfalls are like Hennenborough and Johnny Hendricks. Given the fact that those two guys were supposed to be great. And they actually were great. High up on the pound for poundness. I mean Hendricks pretty much beat GSP. And Hennenborough was like top 2, top 3 pound for pound in the world. On like a 30 fight win streak. Only for them to to not be able to win any fight anymore against even lower level competition. Jorge was never able to reach that kind of status. And then we get to Bill Lindenfelser. Hey Weasel, love the content. Curious on how many future champions you think were on that London card. I think three can very likely get it done. Shore, Mokaev, and Topuria, and maybe Aspinall as well. Also thoughts on Hamzat versus Shavka down the line and Hamzat versus Usman. Thanks, man. I love your content. Thank you so much for the question, man. What I have to say is people are going to look back on that London card as a prophetic event for future talent. The amount of potential champions, title challengers, and ranked contenders on that card will be shocking. So many fighters on that card are going to make it big one day. I think Jack Shore has enough to be a title challenger one day. Muhammad Mokayev might be a future champion. Ilya Taporia I can see as a future champion. Tom Aspinall I can see as a future champion. Arnold Allen future title contender. I can see Sergei Pavlovich as a higher ranked fighter. But definitely three fighters in my opinion have a high chance of being a champion one day. Tom Aspinall, Ilya Taporia, Muhammad Mokayev with a possibility of Jack Shore. Thoughts on Hamza vs Shavka. I've talked about it before. It should be an amazing fight down the road. A brewing fight of sleeping titans. And the Hamza versus Usman. It's too soon to really think about it. We have to see what happens with Burns. I mean that doesn't even sound too soon. <laughs> that fight's happening next week. By next week we have a better clue of how he could fight Usman. And then with the Craig Scharf. Hey Weasel hope I'm not late. But was thinking about this one the other day. A couple years ago when GSP came back against Bisming, There was a lot of talk about GSP ducking Woodley. Yeah I remember that. So in hindsight how would GSP have done against Woodley had he come back to the welterweight division instead of the middleweight division at UFC 217? Crazy to think there was a time when we were debating between GSP and Woodley for the greatest welterweight of all time. LOL, this sport moves so fast. I still cringe at those days because back then I was criticizing. I'm like, how could anybody believe that Woodley is the greatest welterweight of all time? I think it was Rogan that started it. But man, did it spread around. And people wholeheartedly believed in it. In the comments, people always telling me Woodley's actually the best welterweight of all time. He's actually the greatest welterweight of all time. Look at the level of competition he's beating. You know, it's a new era and stuff like this. So I'm like, guys, no. If GSP decided to come back and fight Woodley at that time, he would have beaten Woodley 100%. And I still have the same opinion today. And now in hindsight, everyone's like, okay, yeah, Woodley was not on GSP's level. But the thing was, Woodley never was. He never was, even when the talks were going around. In fact, I'd even put him top two greatest welterweights of all time. In terms of accomplishments, Matt Hughes is above him as well. He would beat Matt Hughes in a fight for sure. But man, that was wild back then. It was the same thing of when people used to say that Max Holloway was greater than Jose Aldo. Remember how strong that was? And then Volkanovski beats Holloway twice and the talks are dead now. What happened? what happened was Jose Aldo was always greater than Max Holloway it was never really even that close people just forgot what Jose Aldo did same way people forgot what GSP did when people were saying that Woodley was the greatest and ironically I love Joe but he started all these ridiculous debates I'm just glad nobody's saying that Adesanya is greater than Anderson Silva take out the whole PED accusation thing Technically, if you take out any fighter that cheated before, then Adesanya is the greatest middleweight wave of all time. But if you include Anderson Silva in there, I'm just glad nobody's saying that Israel is greater than Silva on that list. So if GSP decided to go to Waltwaite instead of fighting Bisping, he would have jabbed Tyron Woodley into a decision. Woodley would not be able to take him to the ground. GSP would be able to kick his legs, sidekick him to the body, keep him away, jab him in the face constantly, counter any aggression that Woodley had, keep him on the fence very similar to what Roy McDonald did, and the fact that GSP did train with Roy McDonald gave him a lot of insight on how to beat Tyron Woodley. And nobody at that time and prior had a better jab than George St. Pierre, and Roy McDonald certainly did not. And look what that jab was able to do against Woodley. Woodley never really changed too much as a fighter When it comes to you know changing his skills He just got better timing Got a little bit smarter and stuff like that But always made similar decisions in the cage So I think a GSP fight with Woodley Would have been similar to what I had with Roy McDonald But much more dominant for GSP And then we go to Austin Wagman Love the content man Almost all fighters when they're in fight shape are very lean and don't have excess body fat when it comes to heavyweights like DC Taito Ivas and Derek Lewis how do you think it would affect their performances if they lost the extra body fat stylistically out of the top 10 heavyweights do you think that Tom Asimov would be the most difficult fight for John Jones interesting so the common answer you're going to get about losing excess body fat is of course it's going to help the fighter and I agree with you ideally it should help the fighter himself perform better but it can actually have a negative exterior effect if he loses too much weight he might get too small for the heavyweight division where now the burden of being technical goes up because now they have to fight at 205 if these guys lose a massive amount of weight and they become too small for the heavyweight division and they're in the range to make it to 205 they're finding a whole different crop of fighters now we being technical Is a lot more common. So yes the fighters with excess fat. Will perform better. If they trim that fat. But at the same time. If they trim too much. They might find themselves in another weight class. That they didn't want to be in. Because look at Roy Nelson for an example. Right. Roy Nelson had knockout power. He didn't need to be too technical. He had great top control as well. Being that one dimensional knockout puncher. In the light heavyweight division. Would not have worked out for him. Same thing with Derek Lewis. Imagine Derek Lewis at 205. He would be faster. He's pretty tall. He's pretty long. But he's so one dimensional with what he does. A lot of those guys would pick them apart. But perhaps losing that excess body fat helps them train. Maybe not get injured as much. And they can do more things with their body. And then stylistically out of the top 10 heavyweights. Would Tom Aspinall be the most difficult fight for John Jones? No I think Francis in Ngannou. The thing with Tom Aspinall is. He's good at everything. But he's not taking John Jones down. And if he does get Jones to the ground. It's not going to be easy for him to hold him down. That's the most important thing there. And number two catch him with a submission. He's going to be finding someone who is relative to his speed. Which is going to give Tom Aspinall a bit of an issue because he does so well with his speed advantage. Fighting a guy who can match it is not going to be comfortable for him, as well as not being as long. John Jones to have a big reach advantage over Aspinall. Aspinall's long range fighting is something that I think John Jones can easily deal with. is more of a linear fighter, punches on a straight path, blitzing in using his speed, keeps his chin up high, but punches are short and tight. I don't think he's going to get around John Jones' reach. That pulse and retreat defense of John Jones is going to work on Tom Aspinall almost every single time. Aspinall's going to have to shoot him for takedowns, but he's not going to catch a double leg. He's going to catch that single leg, and I do not see him taking out John Jones with a single leg at all. They get into the clinch, John Jones is better than him there. So I see John Jones keeping him at bay, side kicking his legs, oblique kicks, jabbing him in the face, going to the body sometimes to gas him out, catch him in the clinch with elbows and knees, maybe even try to take Aspinall to the ground. A prime John Jones, I believe, is way too difficult for Tom Aspinall. I think the most difficult fight in the heavyweight division for John Jones is Francis Ngannou. Given the fact his punching power, he can match Jones' reach. He has stronger wrestling than ever before, and he's fighting smarter these days. Given that Jones' biggest weakness to his game is boxing defense, he really relies on his reach and unorthodox head movement. None of that is really going to matter too much when he fights Francis Ngannou. People bring up Surreal Gan, but I don't know if Surreal Gan's takedown defense is enough. On the feet? Gone beats John Jones. It's tough to say what happens with the wrestling though. And then with Justin Mack. I guess we can close the chapter on Dan Hooker possibly fighting his mate Alexander Volkanovsky. But assuming he makes his move back up to lightweight. Who would you like to see him fight to get back on track with a dub? Also do you think he had a bad wake despite what he said in recent interviews? Love the podcast. Thank you so much. The days of Dan Hooker being a contender I think are over. I think the damage is too much I mean he just got finished again He's not an old fighter by age But he still is old when it comes to the miles that he has on his body And you notice what's going on in that lightweight division The younger guys are creeping up And Dan Hork I believe is going to be roadkill certainly he doesn't want to go up to welterweight either he could beat some of the lower end guys there but once he reaches like the top seven top five that's dicey territory for him so one thing's for sure stop fighting at featherweight that is not the weight class the guy I would like to see him go up against maybe Diego Ferreira that's a good fight for him to bounce back and did he have a bad weight cut I don't know he didn't look like it but man he looks so slow out there so it had to have some kind of effect on him and then with Dylan Gibson If Max loses the Volkanovski for the third time Do you think he will try his hand at lightweight again? How do you see him doing against Oliveira? I think that's a good fight for him I don't really see a path for Oliveira to win Max has the best chin in the game Insane takedown defense And puts an insane pace on you Yeah you have a good point Dustin etched him out with his power But Oliveira doesn't seem to hit as hard Interesting of what you think about it And what each of their paths to victory would be in that fight Love the content dude Keep it up Thank you so much man Interesting So styles make fights And I can agree with you Holloway has a good style To go up against Oliveira. But you have to remember. Oliveira is much bigger these days. They fought each other at featherweight. And a lot of people give that win to Max Holloway. But when you look at the fight. Oliveira just got injured. Nothing happened there. At the time it was actually highly anticipated. Because Oliveira was doing good things. Holloway was on a win streak. But now in the lightweight division. Oliveira's takedowns have gotten so much better. He's so much smarter with his decisions. And he's always been an offensive monster. His defense hasn't really caught up. But you're saying that Max will put a pace on him. Max is not putting a pace on Oliveira. That is not happening. Oliveira is better with forward pressure. Holloway has an insane pace. And he's better with keeping volume on you. But the only way you can keep volume on someone like that. Is if you have forward pressure on him. I believe Oliveira has the most effective forward pressure in the lightweight division right now. It used to be Habib, And now you have Charles Oliveira. The guy... Pushes you back right from the start. Look at when he fought Dustin, when he fought Tony Ferguson. He tried against Michael Chandler, and Chandler is a guy who likes to push people back. He has an imposing power style that gets everybody a bit intimidated, and they were very even with the pressure. The only way that Oliveira starts to really back up in fights is when you hurt him or you're throwing power shots at him. And Max doesn't have that level of power, I believe, to hurt Oliveira to that extent. But in terms of takedown defense, a good chin, and to be able to go into the later rounds, which is something we don't see from Oliveira. We don't know if Oliveira has 4th and 5th round cardio. That's where it can make the fight difficult for the champion. But here's the thing man. I see eventually that Oliveira gets Max to the ground. He doesn't need to give him the first shot. Or even the 2nd or 3rd or 4th. He just needs to get Max Holloway on the ground one time in order to work his magic. And I believe at some point he will be able to do that. Because Max is a big guy for featherweight. But he hasn't filled himself up to be a natural lightweight. Oliveira has. Remember Oliveira going up to lightweight for the first time. He was small. He was small. Look at him now compared to then. When he fought Nick Lentz back in the day. Or Paul Felder back in the day. He's much, much bigger now. He has filled himself up to be a natural lightweight. Same thing with Dustin Poirier. Dustin was smaller early on. When he fought Diego Ferreira and Bobby Green. Now he's wide and thick. Because his body is naturally acclimated to the weight class. Max's has not and I believe... He will be weaker than Charles in that fight. I think Charles would be able to eventually take him to the ground and submit him. And even on the feet, I think it's competitive. Max might get the better of him a few times. But you know what happens when Max punches with someone. He tends to reset on his action. He's getting better at not doing that than you saw that in the Ayer fight. The progression in that style. But Oliveira I believe hits harder than the Yair does He's a sharper puncher He also has amazing leg kicks to punish Max And we all know Max doesn't really check leg kicks And he's much more aggressive So I can actually see where Charles Oliveira is backing Holloway up to the cage Using that forward pressure, pumping jabs on him, hand trapping him, constantly feinting forward, throwing a right hand, transitioning to a double leg takedown, trying to take him to the ground. This kind of aggression is eventually going to get Holloway to the ground or enough for Charles Oliveira to get his back and choke him out. I know what a lot of people are saying. It's hard to submit Max Holloway these days. He's fought a lot of black belts and even fought Ortega. Ortega took him to the ground in the first and third rounds. Third round had a little bit more control time, but he has not grappled with someone like Oliveira because yes... Oliveira and Ortega's Brazilian jiu-jitsu alone are comparable But the wrestling between the two is not Oliveira is a much better wrestler than Ortega is He's much better at holding control He's much better at finding openings through his wrestling positions to use his BJJ Whereas Ortega has not really good top control But he's always dangerous to jump on something Imagine an Ortega with good wrestling top control That's what you get in Charles Oliveira Because Max was able to get up from under Ortega pretty quickly in the fight And then we'll go to John Jordan. What exactly does pound for pound mean? I heard it means when you compare fighters as if they were the same size, then by skill alone. For an example, Henry Cejudo compared to Greg Hardy, if they were the same size, Henry would be the better fighter. His added size plus greater skills would make him superior. So his pound for pound value is greater in that he currently has more skill packed into a smaller body. Is that right? Yes. Pound for pound was created back in the day for uh, Sugar Ray Robinson. Because Sugar Ray Robinson wasn't the biggest guy. Heavyweight division was like the marquee division for boxing. But Sugar Ray Robinson a middleweight showed superior skill to anybody else on the planet Regardless of weight classes And it surprised a lot of people So even though they knew that the heavyweight boxers You know the Joe Lewis's of the world The Rocky Marciano's of the world The Floyd Patterson's of the world Of course they would beat Sugar Ray Robinson in a fight But in order to complement the smaller guy's skill They created the concept of pound for pound Who is actually the best fighter Take weight classes and size out of the picture Everybody's on equal ground when it comes to size who is the best fighter and generally not always but generally the smaller guys tend to be the better fighters somewhere along the line in MMA it has switched up pound for pound later became who is the most accomplished fighter regardless of size which really doesn't matter you can add size because no one's going up against each other maybe they're correlating accomplishments with fighting skill and yes there's a strong correlation but oftentimes there's guys who didn't have enough time to prove themselves that are actually the best fighters in the world Kamaru Usman is number one pound for pound. Regardless of how you look at pound for pound. He's going to be toward the top. He's just so good at what he does. But he had so much time there. He's an older fighter. Has a lot of experience. Guys like Piotr Jan. So far has not had enough time to prove himself. So in my opinion. Piotr Jan is the number one pound for pound fighter. Or you can say Alexander Volkanovsky. So in fact. The newfound definition of pound for pound favors more experienced fighters when in fact that's not always the case so the real original definition would not have Kamar Usman at the top and then we go to the public questions we start with Tyler Kelly if Tony Ferguson beats Michael Chandler how close is he back to a title shot that would be something huh imagine Tony Ferguson reinserting himself in the title picture Well Michael Chandler is number 5 in the rankings Tony's number 7 So Tony would be back up in the top 5 In the perfect world he would be 1 win away Let's say he beats Chandler And then he beats Dustin Poirier He's probably going to get a title shot But most likely it's going to be 2 more wins after Your next question After Aspinall's performance against Volkov How do you think he does against the top 5 heavyweights and John Jones? Love the content weasel from Ireland Shout out to Ireland Thank you for the question So Aspinall versus the top 5 heavyweights and John Jones so he beats Derek Lewis, loses the Curtis Blades, beats Taito Ivasa. I would say now he would beat Stipe. I don't think Stipe is going to recover too well from that knockout loss. But that's all speculation. If it's a prime Stipe Miocic, I would go with Stipe. But I have a feeling that Asmaul might be a little bit too fast and too sharp at his youth. For Stipe to handle him. Surreal Ghosn beats Tom Aspinall. And Francis Agano definitely. Definitely beats Tom Aspinall. I think John Jones wins as well. Here's the thing I want to talk about Tom Aspinall. I've been praising him for a while. I've been saying that he's going to be a contender soon. He has skills that you don't see from a lot of heavyweights. He's one of the most technical fighters in the heavyweight division. And as much as I love Tom Aspinall. As much as I've been praising the guy. I have to bring it back to reality. He is getting a bit overestimated. After that win over Volkov. Before the Volkov fight, it seemed many fans weren't sold on Aspinall. And I was often questioned many times about his potential. They were criticizing his hype. A lot of people did not believe he would be one of the top contenders. A lot of people believed that Volkov was going to beat him. But now with how easy that win was over a top contender, the pendulum has swung so far the other way. The same people now think he's the best fighter in that division. It seems like the surprising debunk on people's criticism about him has caused this. Where they are now overestimating his skills... Where in fact, they are somewhere in the middle of where they had it originally and where they have it now. No, he's not a lower top 10 fighter. He's not number 9, not number 8, even number 7, number 6. I believe he's better than that. But he's also not the number 1 fighter. I believe he's a fighter that one day can fight for the belt. Maybe he could become the champion in the future after he progresses from where he is now. I think he lingers around the number 4 spot. I think from number 6 to like number 3, number 2, that's where he lies. Then we go to Lucas. I personally think that Piercy Jan is the most skilled fighter in MMA today, considering his whole package. He is strong, fast, has power in his shots, top tier striker, top tier grappler, especially with his wrestling. Most importantly though, he has insane fight IQ. I think if you transform Jan into a fitting version for every weight class, he would easily be top 5 in each of them, if not the champion. What do you think? And thanks for the content. Yeah, I agree top three best fighters in the ufc in my opinion he does everything at a very high level besides we don't know where his submission game is yet but if you were to put him in any weight class to fitting size easily top five in each weight class without a problem in fact i would have to push it top three at least then what's a nebnos after muhammad mokai's debut win in london he has 739 days to become the youngest champion in ufc history in order to beat John Jones' record. Do you think this is the best chance there's ever been for someone. To beat it considering the lack of depth at flyweight at the moment. Cheers for the content from the UK. Yeah there's a possibility you guys can get the youngest champion in UFC history. But time is ticking he better get going quick. The fact I haven't heard about his next fight yet concerns me about the goal. He has about two years left. And he only has one fight in the UFC. The flyweight division isn't as stacked as the heavyweight division was when John Jones ran through it, which makes John Jones run so legendary without taking into a factor uh, any kind of uh, supplements. But let's do the math. If Mohamed Mokayev can get 10 wins in two years, could he then become the flyweight champion? Because how many top 15 wins would he need in order to fight for the belt? Because here's the thing it took two wins for Tagir Ulampakov to become a top 15 fighter. Just two wins against nobody that was ranked. And he had a split decision win. So going off of that. Mohammed mokayev can be in the top 15 after one more win. He beats someone in the top 15. And if we follow Tagir's track. He got a shot against a top 15 fighter Tim Elliott. And he lost. So he didn't go up in the rankings. So let's say Mukhaev also gets a top 15 opponent next. He fights Amir Al-Bazi or David Vorak. He beats that guy. Now let's say he is number 10. So that's two wins. Now he fights someone from number 5 to number 10. Let's say he beats Rogério Bontorin, who's number 8. Now Mokaev is in the top 7. That's 3 wins. Then he beats someone in the top 5. Let's say number 5, Alex Perez. Now Mokaev is in the top 5. That's 4 wins. Now he fights someone in the top 3. Let's say he beats Kawar Franz. That's 5 wins. Now Mokaev is in the top 3. And at that point, because of the hype, he would probably get a title shot immediately after that. So logically, 5 wins. 5 more wins. And Mohammed Mokayev could fight for the belt. That's a lot faster than I thought. That means that there's a potential in one and a half years. If we're just going by a consistent average pace. Not fighting five times a year. Let's say like three or four times a year. In one and a half years. This guy could become a champion and beat the record. But remember he has to win all these fights. He cannot lose once. Then with the Kai Levy. Hey Weasel I've got a couple questions about Kai France As he seemed to settle down and find his rhythm in the UFC. We also share the same name. Did you think that Kai Kara France won the Asgrov fight? Yes, I do. Where does Asgrov go from here? He doesn't move that much. It was a really close fight. I mean, now he's ranked number three. So he could fight uh, Pantoja, Perez, or the loser, Figueredo and Brandon Moreno, which is the one I want to see more. And do I see Kai Kara France winning the belt if he gets a title shot? How does he fare against Figgy and Moreno? So he has a pretty good chance, man. He's a good fighter. I believe he is one of the best in that division. I think he can hang with Figgy and Moreno. He might have a better chance of beating Moreno than he does beating Figgy. But it's a contrast of styles. The Figgy fight is going to be a lot more physical for a Kai who isn't afraid to brawl it out. I don't think he's going to succeed in brawling with Figgy. But he's definitely going to be in there. Now Moreno has good trips on the clinch. Which I do see working on Kai. But I think Kai is going to be able to stand up. And this fight could resort to a striking match. I think Kai is going to throw a lot of leg kicks. Moreno doesn't really check too much of those. And having the power advantage He's going to force Moreno to try to counter a lot of these leg kicks and punches. And I think Kai is going to be able to find his own shots off of there. So in fact, I can actually favor Kai beating Moreno. It is very, very close. But I don't see him beating Figgy. Thanks for the content man. Keep it up. Thank you so much for the question, man. And then Jack KC. Who wins a professional slap fight? Nate Diaz or Will Smith? Also love the content man. I also have a serious question. How does Rafael Fiziev compete with the top 10 lightweights? You gotta go with the original, man. Nate Diaz did it better than anybody. I mean, with the famous slap, Will Smith's form was horrendous. He grazed him with the fingers. Nate Diaz gets his whole palm in on there. But Fizia versus the top 10, he beats Connor, beats Gillespie, beats Tony Ferguson, loses the RDA right now. I think eventually he would surpass him. Loses the Michael Chandler, beats Benil Dariush, loses the Islam, loses the Poirier, loses the geishi and beats Oliveira. remember this is Fiziev right now this is not what he potentially will become in the future in the future i believe he will be one of the top guys and then with the jm darren till recently said that tom asma would toy with john jones at heavyweight do you agree or disagree and how would a fight between them two at the heavyweight division will go down okay so i talked about this before john jones i think would win but the thing i have to talk about this is people have to remember that what teammates say about each other should almost never be taken seriously of course darren till would say that He's not going to say, I think John Jones would beat Tom Aspinall. I don't think Tom Aspinall has enough to beat John Jones. I don't think Aspinall is going to be champion one day. Like, he's never going to say these things. He's going to think the world of Tom Aspinall for sure. Every fighter talks like this for their teammates. They all think that they're the best fighters in the world. They all would legitimately think that they could beat Superman if he existed. I never take what teammates say about each other serious at all. I always overlook it. I mean, Artem Lobov was in the UFC. He did have a good fight with Cub Swanson, but come on. We all know why he was in the UFC. Teammates think the world of each other. I did not mean to talk about the GOAT like that. What I meant to say was, he was actually too good for the UFC. He decided to leave on his own terms. And then with the burner account. If Charles beats Geishi and Makashev, is he the lightweight GOAT? And what is your dream fight to see in the UFC? Would he be the lightweight GOAT? So he beat Chandler. He beat Dustin, one of the greatest lightweights of all time. And he goes and beats Geishi and Makashev to tie the record for defenses. What does Habib's record look like? So Habib beat Justin and Dustin, common wins. But he beat Connor, Barbosa, Johnson, Iaquinta, and RDA. Charles Oliveira beat Tony, Kevin Lee, Will Brooks. Will Brooks is a good fighter. So, right off the bat, the Dustin win is the best for each fighter. That's their top tier win. Then, what do you look at as the next best win? Would you have to consider Oliveira's win over Islam as a second best above anyone else that Habib has beaten? Is that a better win than the RDA win and the Geishi win? It's going to be a bit subjective, but I would have to say a win over Islam potentially is a better win over Geishi and RDA. Then you have the RDA win. Is Habib's RDA win above beating Gaethje? I would probably have to say so. And then they have the common win with Justin Gaethje. After that, we're talking about Tony Ferguson. We're talking about Conor McGregor. We're talking about Michael Chandler. Which are the next best wins? I believe Habib's win over Connor is above the Tony win and above the Chandler win. Then I'm going to go with Oliveira's Chandler and Tony Ferguson wins. After that, we're talking about Habib's win over Barboza, Michael Johnson, and Al Quinta. Compared to Charles Oliveira's wins over Kevin Lee and Will Brooks. I think Habib's wins over Ay Quinta and Edson Barboza are definitely above Oliveira's wins over Kevin Lee and Will Brooks. And you can even factor in Michael Johnson as a better win as well. Take into consideration that Charles Oliveira also lost in the lightweight division. And not even about the quality of opponents. But Habib had better wins. More dominant wins. It's close. But I would not put Charles Oliveira above Habib on the GOAT list. If he goes out there and gets another big win. Gets that 4th title defense. Breaks the record. Then you might have to put Charles Oliveira above Habib In my dream fight for the UFC... I would love to see Usman versus GSP. And then with the Mike Hetchler. Fantasy matchups for Lightweight. Prime Dustin versus Prime Tony. I'm going to go with Prime Tony. Armin Sarjukian versus Michael Chandler. I'm going to go with Sarjukian. Habib versus Islam. I'm going to go with Habib. Dustin versus Justin 2 I'm going to go with Dustin. And then we get to Nathan Ostel. What would happen if the Korean Zombie were to beat Volkanovski? Would Volk get an immediate rematch? Or would Max get the next title shot? How would the rest of the featherweight division play out if this were to happen? Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, man. It depends how the fight plays out. If Korean Zombie just dominates and knocks Volkanovski out, then no, I don't see Volkanovski getting an immediate rematch. I think Max would get a title shot over him. But if it was a close fight and Volkanovski like loses a close decision, then yes, I could see an immediate rematch rest of the featherweight division doesn't change too much it looks very similar i mean there's not a clear next contender for the title shot and then with the Janiques number one do you think that darren till's relationship with hamzat and his fight camp in sweden would give adesanya problems if they were to fight each other number two what does a typical training session for you look like and do you do any weightlifting, calisthenics etc so if darren till fights israel i don't think it changes too much it always is going to be a competitive fight given the fact that they're both patient strikers but i think israel always have an advantage in that fight I don't think from where he is that Darren Till could get to a level of wrestling to use it in order to beat Israel Adesanya. I don't see it happening. Yes he's been training with Hamzat but he hasn't been doing it for so long. They've been training with each other for like what a month or two. That's not enough. He would have to train with Hamzat for like a year or two at least. I believe in order to have this wrestling game that could beat Israel Adesanya because Whitaker had a wrestling game in order to get pretty close and Darren Till's not nearly as good of a wrestler as Robert Whitaker is. And for my training session, I haven't done any MMA training consistently for some time. There's many reasons as to why, but I am going to get right back into it very, very soon. But when I was doing it consistently, it was always by session. I would go into the Muay Thai sessions. I would go into the BJJ sessions and the MMA sessions. So each day is different than the week. But let's say like the most busy day was Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'll do Nogi at like noontime. Immediately, I would go weight training, do calisthenics, all that stuff. Later, come back from Muay Thai at like 7 p.m. ish. Then for MMA training, it's around 8 or 8.30. That would be a typical like longer training day for myself. And yes, weightlifting is very important. If you're training to be a fighter or a martial artist or something like that, I think calisthenics are actually going to be better for you in the long term with some weight training to balance things out. Typically, I used to only do high repetitions and low weight and revolve my workouts to more performance-based and not lift too heavy of weight. Workouts I love to do. I always do them every single day. Quick ladder drills. Very good for your footwork. Jump roping is really good, but in my opinion, it gets to a point where it's just sustaining what you got. I recommend quick ladder drills 100% these are so good man and do them barefoot and in my opinion the best workout for myself is running the sled it's great for endurance helps your explosiveness trains multiple different muscle groups and once you run it down if you have a partner this is something I did with my brother tie a rope to it so as you run it down let's say your partner is where you started they're sitting down and they're pulling the sled back using only their upper body once you're done you run back to where he is he runs the sled down now you sit and you pull the rope this is such a high intensity workout and it works differently for multiple different purposes man i got so many unorthodox workouts that i do forget sit-ups and leg raises and all that stuff try the windshield wiper and leg raise workout this workout's almost the entire core where you're laying on your back hands out to your sides you're doing the windshield wipers keep your feet together legs together if you can extend them fully so you go from left, bring them up straight above you then do one leg raise once you bring it up again then go to your right, bring it up again one leg raise, left leg raise, right leg raise this is the hardest core workout I've ever done before and I didn't get to this point yet but once you master this on the ground start doing this on a pull up bar that is one of my goals I'm trying to accomplish and also when you talk about like push-ups and pull-ups and stuff, I think those stuff are very important. And for me, I always went to the explosive route. Whether putting weight on myself or not, I would always explode with my push-ups, explode with my pull-ups and dips and stuff like that. Once I mastered the original form and doing them normally have become a bit easy, that's when I start to modify it a little bit and work more on fast twitch instead of the slow twitch, which usually comes with the original form. And I've done this for years, man. Doing push-ups every day, pull-ups every day dips every day squats every day sit-ups every single day those five common workouts I do them every single day sometimes even multiple times a day to the point where back in high school actually I think it was my junior or senior year I was like 17 years old I broke the school record for most push-ups in a minute I did 79 push-ups in one minute until my friend a week later broke that and he got 84 push-ups these consistent fast twitch workouts the younger you are it can really help your development in that area being fast and all that stuff if any of you guys saw my and while it was up if any of you saw the video of me hitting the bag not the one i'm kicking it but just using my hands the video is not up anymore but a lot of people were able to notice the hand speed and that's what they're asking me about well these are the methods i've gone through for so long ever since i was a young teen like 12 years old i started doing these workouts every single day and i still do them it can help your hand speed it can help your footwork speed a quick way to sprawl on takedowns and stuff and not just for mma and combat sports i mean help you in multiple different sports for an example I did track and field for a long time. I was always a sprinter. Always ran the 100 meter dash, 200 meter, and 400 meter I was really good at all of these and these workouts over the years have really helped my development in all different kinds of sports and I know a lot of people are going to ask what was my time for the 100 meter 200 meter and 400 meter I don't remember my PR for 200 but my 100 meter dash record was 10.9 seconds my 400 meter was about 52 seconds which is really not great in high school I made it to regionals with that but really didn't do too well there I believe I got eighth place total for the 400 one of the best things in my opinion is go to the track a lot of people want to just use the treadmill and the treadmill it works for sure but i love using the track there's something different about you actually stepping on the ground compared to stepping on the machine i think it's more mental than it is physically affecting your body but running but running on the track i think is very good for you and a lot of people overlook like the 400 meter and 800 meter run a lot of people go to the extremes they either do quick sprints 100 meters or They do like five mile runs. That stuff's really good. Run five miles, run the 100 meter. But it's a good thing to also tap into the 400 and 800 meter runs because that really works both a long cardio and short explosion together. For anybody that wants in an insane track workout, this is something that killed me. But man, does it show results. These are for quick sprints. It's called a breakdown. And it's categorized as a speed endurance workout. And the more you do it, the more it can help with lactic acid tolerance. Which is extremely important for all sports, no matter what you're doing. And of course, it definitely helps your explosiveness and can build a lot of muscle. In simple terms, what it is is run the 400 meter 300 200 and then 100 what you want to do is you start at the 200 meter mark from there run a full 400 meter dash so that's one time around the track ways you can do this is you can run the whole thing like 70 or 80 percent after every single run you get a 300 meter walk which is going to be your rest time this is three-fourths of the track 300 meter walk you end up to the 300 meter mark from there you run the 300 meter dash probably want to run the whole thing at like 80%. From there, you're going to have another 300 meter walk. Then you run the 200 meter dash, run the whole thing like 80 to 90%, another 300 meter walk, and then you run the 100 meter dash at 100%. I'm pretty sure fighters do this during training camp as it is a highly intense workout. And honestly, one of the hardest workouts I've ever done in my entire life. But that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to give the video a thumbs up. Make sure to give it a like. Make sure to subscribe and hit the bell. And I'll see you guys in the next video.